What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Chapter 6 of Fairlands of the South Seas this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mike Vendetti. Chapter 6. Retario. Chance began to move of set purpose in Pepiti on the day I was to sail with the 110-ton schooner Caleb S. Winthrop for the cloud of islands. I was on my way to the waterfront, and having plenty of time, walked leisurely, thinking of the long journey so nearly at hand, of the strange and lonely islands I was to see and wondering, as an Anglo-Saxon must, when presented with a piece of good fortune, what I had done to merit it. Oro, the cabin-boy of the Windrip, was following with my luggage. He kept at some distance a mark of respect, as I thought, until I saw him sublet his contract to a smaller boy. Then he retired to spend the unearned increment in watermelon and a variety of cakes sold at the Chinese stalls along the street not wanting him to think that i begrudged him his last little fling on shore i became interested of a sudden in the contents of a shop window and there i saw a box full of marbles in a moment oro was forgotten papati faded from view and the warm air fragrant with the odors of vanilla and roasting coffee became more bracing there was a tang in it like that of early april in iowa for example, at the beginning of the marble-playing season. Fifteen years dropped lightly from my shoulders, and I was back at the old rendezvous in the imagination, almost as really as I had ever been in the flesh. The lumber-yard of S. M. Brown and Son lay on the right hand, and the Rock Island Railroad tracks on the left. Between, on a stretch of smooth cinder right-of-way, a dozen games were in full swing. There were cries of picks and vents, bunchers, sneakers, knucks down, the sharp crack of expert shots, the crunch of cinders under bare and yet tender feet. Meadowlarks were singing in a nearby pasture, and from afar I heard the deep whistle of the Rocky Mountain Limited as it came down the Mitchfield grade. I bought the marbles, the whole box of them. They cost fifty francs, about four dollars American, as the exchange was then. But I considered the investment a good one. I knew that no matter where I might be, to lift the lid of my box was to make an immediate and inexpensive journey back to one of the pleasantest periods of boyhood. Oral was awaiting me at the quay and carried my small sea-chest on board with an air of spurious fatigue. I gave him my purchase and told him to stow it away for me in the cabin which he did with such care that I did not find it again until we were within view 
of Ruterio. The Caleb S. Winship was homeward bound then. From Tano, where we had left Crichton, the English planter, Ruterio lying on our course, it was decided to put in there, in the hope that we might be able to replace our lost deck cargo of copra, washed overboard in a squall a few days previously. Neither Findlay's South Pacific Directory nor the British Admiralty's sailing directions had much to say about the atoll. Both agreed that the lagoon is nine miles long by five broad, and that on June 29, 1887, the French surveying vessel, saint Etienne found the tide running through a narrow pass at two knots per hour, the flood as swift as the ebb. It was further stated that in 1889 Her Majesty's ship, Prince Edward, anchored in eight fathoms, three hundred yards from shore, in front of the village, which is situated on the most westerly island, and from that a few pigs and chickens were purchased at a nominal price from the inhabitants. With this information, I had to be content in so far as my reading was concerned. There was nothing of a later date in either volume, and the impression I had was that the atoll, having been charted and briefly described, had remained unvisited, almost forgotten, for a period of thirty-one years. This, of course, was not the case. Tinned beef and kerosene oil had followed the flag there as elsewhere in the world. Religion, in fact, had preceded it, leaving a broad wake of Bibles and black Mother Hubbards still in evidence among the older generation. But skippers of small trading schooners are rarely correspondents of the hydrographic associations, and the reports from the field of itinerant missionaries are buried in the dusty files of the religious journals, so that Rotario is as little known to the world at large as it has always been. Findlay's general remarks about it were confined to a single sentence, a lonely atoll, numbering in a population of between seventy-five and one hundred inhabitants. It certainly looked lonely enough on the chart, far out on the westerly fringe of the archipelago, more than six hundred miles from the nearest steamship route, and that one infrequently traveled. I sought further information from Tino Atino, the supercargo a three-quarters american despite his tahitian name he had been trading in the low islands for twenty years and during that time had created a voluminous literature with reference to their inhabitants but it was all of an occupational nature and confined to the ledgers of the inter-island trading company i found him at his usual task in the cabin where he gave me some specimen compositions for criticism we should look them over he said these copra bugs drive a man wild. They get in your eyes, in your liquor, in your mouth. Lord, what a life! The cabin was filled with unsacked copra to the level of the upper tier of bunks. One had to crawl on hands and knees. The copra bugs were something of a nuisance, and the smell and heat oppressive. I had traveled on more comfortable vessels with tennis courts on the boat decks and Roman swing baths below, but they didn't touch at Rotario. I went through his accounts verifying long list of items such as to Terry Tutu DR one dozen beacon lanterns at four hundred and eighty francs francs four eighty to Uhaiti Pounce DR twelve sacks lily dust flower at three hundred francs francs thirty six hundred to Lohong Chin DR one gross night king flash lamps at thirty six hundred francs francs thirty six hundred 
The work of checking up finished. We went out for a breath of air. The atoll lay abeam, and still far distant, a faint bluish haze lifted a bare eighth of an inch above the circle of the horizon. Behind us, rain fell in a straight wall of water from a single black cloud which cast a deep shadow over the path we had come. Elsewhere the sky was clear, and the sea the incredible blue of the tropics. Tino broke a long silence. Look here, he said. What is it that interests you in these islands? I have never known anyone to visit them for pleasure before. Is it the women, or what? Under pressure I admitted that nature seemed to have spent her best effort among the Pomotians in fashioning the men. You're right, said Tino. The women are healthy enough, of course, but they don't set your heart beating a hundred to a minute. They have fine hands and white teeth, and you won't find such black hair in all the world as you'll find in these atolls. But that's the size of it. You can't praise them any further for looks. Maybe you haven't noticed their ears, because they always cover them up with their hair. But they're large, and their feet and ankles tough as sole leather, and all scarred over with coral cuts. That is well enough for the men, but with the women it's different. Makes you lose your enthusiasm, don't it? I had seen a good many striking exceptions in our wanderings, but I had agreed in the main. What he said was true. Well, if it ain't the women, what else is there to be interested in? Not the island themselves, Lord. When you've seen one, you've seen on the lot. Living on one of them is like living aboard ship. Not room to stretch your legs. They're solid enough, and they don't sink. But in a hurricane, I'd a heap rather take my chances out to sea with the windship than to be lashed to the stoutest coconut tree in the whole group. Now you take Rotario. It was washed over seventeen years ago, and all but twenty of the people killed. They are back to seventy-five now, but wait till the next bad blow down the way. They'll drown like rats, just as they did before. Well, we don't have to stop long, he added, grouchily. I'll take what copra they have and get out. It's a godforsaken hole. They only make about twenty-five tons a year. The island could produce three times that amount under decent management. They're a lazy, independent lot, at Rotero. You can't get them to stir themselves. I asked him what they had to gain by stirring themselves. Gain, he said. They have everything to gain. There are two frame houses on the place. The rest of them are miserable little shelters of coconut thatch. I haven't sold them enough corrugated iron in ten years to cover this cockpit. You remember Takura and Nayu and Fakunia? Well, there's my idea of islands. Nice European furniture, iron beds, center tables, phonographs, bicycles. A further catalogue of the comforts and conveniences of civilization which the inhabitants of Rutaro might have and didn't convinced me that this was the atoll I had been looking for, and I regretted that our stay here was to be so brief. I did not begrudge the inhabitants of richer atolls their phonographs and bicycles. They got an incredible amount of amusement out of them, listened with delight to the strange music, and spent entire evenings taking turns with the bicycles, riding them back and forth from the lagoon beach to the ocean shore. But the frame houses were blots on the landscape, crude barn-like structures, most of them which offended the eye like factory chimneys in a green valley. Ruterio had none of these things, and having no interest in it from the commercial point of view, 
I awaited impatiently our arrival there. At ten o'clock we were three miles to windward of the village island. It lay at the narrower end of the lagoon, the inner shore line curving around a broad indentation where the village was. The land narrowed in one direction to a ledge of reef. At the further end there was a small motu, not more than three hundred yards in length by one hundred broad, separated from the main island by a strip of shallow water. Seen from aloft, the two islands resembled roughly in outline an old-fashioned high-pooped vessel with a small boat in tow. I could see the whole of the toll from the mainmast cross-trees, the lagoon shimmering into green over the shoals, darkening to an intense blue over unlit valleys of ocean floor, a solitude of sunlit water, placid as a lake buried in the depths of inaccessible mountains. I followed the shoreline with my glasses. Distant islands, ledges of barren reef, leap forward with an effect of magic, as though our atom of a vessel, the only sail which relieved the emptiness of the sea, had been swept in an instant to within a few yards of the surf. Great combers, green and ominous-looking in the sunlight, broke at one rapidly advancing point, toppled and fell in segments, filling the inner shadows with a smother of foam. Beyond it lay the broad fringe of white, deserted beach, the narrow forest of shrubs and palm, the empty lagoon, a border of misty islands on the further side. I had seen the same sort of a picture twenty times before, always with the same keen sense of its desolate beauty, its allurement, its romantic loveliness. Tino had said, When you've seen one, you've seen them all, and an old skipper once told me that the atolls are as much alike as the reef points on that sail. It is true. They are as monotonous as the sea itself, and as fresh with varying interest. The village was hidden among the trees, but I saw the French flag flying near a break in the reef, which marked the landing-place for small boats. Further back a little knot of people were gathered, some of them sitting in the full glare of the sun, others in the deep shade, leaning against the trees in attitudes of dreamy meditation. Three girls were combing their hair, talking and laughing in an animated way. They were dressed in all their European finery, gowns of flowered muslin pulled up around their bare legs to prevent soilure. A matronly woman in a red wrapper had thrown the upper covering aside and sat naked to the waist nursing a baby. I put down my glasses, feeling rather ashamed of my scrutiny, as though I had been peeping through a window at some intimate domestic scene. The island leaped into the distance. The broad circle of foam and jagged reef narrowed to a thread of white, and the Caleb S. Windship crept landward again under a light breeze, an atom of a ship on a vast and empty sea. Eight bells struck, a tinkling sound, dead and scarcely audible in the wide air. I heard Tino's voice as though coming from an immense distance. Hello up there. Carry Khan's ready, I said. All right, I'm coming, and was surprised at the loudness of my own shout. But I waited for a moment to indulge myself in a last reflection. It is thirty-one years since the Prince Edward put in here. Excepting a few traders and missionaries, there isn't probably one man in one hundred thousand who has ever heard of this atoll, not one in a million who has ever seen it, or ever will see it. What a piece of luck for me! 
Then I saw Oro at the galley door with a huge platter of boiled beef and sweet potatoes. The sight of it reminded me that I was very hungry. As I climbed down to the deck, I was conscious of the fact that a healthy appetite and a good digestion were a piece of luck, too, and that as long as one could hold it, the lure of islands would remain, and one's love of living burn with a clear flame. Jack the monkey seemed to divine my thought to agree with it. As Oro, the food-bearer, passed him, he reached down from his perch in the rigging, seized the largest sweet potato on the platter, and clambered out of reach. Assured of his safety, he fell to greedily looking out, wistfully toward the island. The pass was at the further end of the lagoon, and in order to save time in getting the work ashore under way, the supercargo and I, with three of the sailors, put off in the whaleboat to land on the ocean side of the village. Half a dozen men rushed into the surf, seized and held the boat as the backwash poured down the stern incline at the edge of the reef. Among them was the chief, a man of huge frame, six foot two or three in height. Like the others who assisted at the landing, he was clad only in a peru, but he lost none of his dignity through his nakedness. He was fifty-five years old, as I afterward learned, and as he stood bidding us welcome, I thought of the strange appearance certain of the chief men in America or France or England would make under similar circumstances, deprived of the kindly concealment of clothing. What a revelation it would be, of skinniness or pudginess! What an exhibition of scrawny necks, fat stomachs, flat chests, flabby arms! To be strictly accurate, I had seen some fat stomachs among elderly Pomoyerans, but they were exceptions, and always remarkable for that reason. And those who carried them had sturdy legs. They did not give one the uneasy feeling common at home at the sight of the great paunches of sedentary men toppling unsteadily along a strip of crimson carpet from curb to curb doorway. Wherever one goes in Polynesia, one is reminded, by contrast, of the cost physically to men of our own race of our sheltered way of living. There on every hand are men well past middle life, with compact symmetrical bodies and the natural grace of healthy children. One sees them carrying immense burdens without exertion, swimming in the open sea for an hour or two at a time while spearing fish, loafing ashore with no greater apparent effort for yet longer periods. Sometimes, when they have it, they eat enormous quantities of food at one sitting, and at others under necessity as sparingly as so many deceptics. It would be impossible to formulate from their example any rules for rational living in more civilized communities. The daily quest for food under primitive conditions keeps them alert and sound of body, so that, whether they work or loaf, feast or fast, they seem always to acquire health by it. There had been no boats at Rotario in five months, and the crowd on the beach was unfeigningly glad to see us. The arrival of a schooner at that remote island was an event of great importance. The sight of new places lighted their own with pleasure, which warmed the heart toward them at once. We had brought ashore a consignment of goods for Moi Ling, the Chinese storekeeper, and when the handshaking was over they gathered around it as eagerly as a group of American children at a Christmas tree. Even the village constable seemed unconscious of any need for a show of dignity or authority. The only badge of his office was a cigarette-card picture 
of President Poincartier, fastened with a safety pin to his old felt hat. He neglected his duties as a keeper of order, and was one of the most excited of Moy Ling's helpers, with the cargo. He kept patting him affectionately on the back, saying, Matoy, Matoy, which in that situation may be as freely translated as, You know me, Moy Ling. And the old Chinaman smiled, the pleasant, non-committal smile of his countrymen the world over. Tino's was the only sour face on the beach. He moved through the crowd, giving orders, grumbling and growling half to himself and half to me. I told you they were a lazy lot, he said. They've seen us making in for three hours, and what have they been doing? Loafing on the beach, waiting for us instead of getting their copra together. Moiling is the only one in the village who is ready to do business. Five tons, all sacked for weighing. He's worth a dozen Kanakas. Well, I'll set him to work in quick time now. You watch me. I'm going to be loaded and out of here by six o'clock. But Chance, using me as an innocent accomplice, ordered it otherwise. It was Sir Thomas Brown who said, Those who hold that all things are governed by fortune had not erred had they not persisted there. He may be right, although I don't remember now where his own non-persistence lay. But there are some things, some events, which chance of fortune, whatever one wishes to call it, governs from the outset with an amazing show of omnipotence. Tracing them back, one becomes almost convinced of a fixed intent, a far-sighted, unwavering determination in its apparently haphazard functioning. It is clear to me now that because I had been fond of playing marbles as a boy, I was to be marooned fifteen years later on a fragment of land six thousand miles from the lumberyard of S. M. Brown and Son. Tino had no more to do with that result than I did. He merely lost his temper because chance disorganized his plans for an early departure, tried to quench his anger in rum and because more furious still because he was drunk then off he went in the caleb s windship leaving me stranded ashore i can hear his parting salutation which he roared at me through a megaphone across the starlit lagoon you can stay but this is anticipating the story moves in a more leisurely fashion as i have said my box of marbles came to light again only a few hours before we reached Rutario. I took them ashore with me, thinking they might amuse the children. They had a good knowledge of the technique of shooting acquired in a two-handed game common among the atolls, which is played with bits of polished coral. But theirs had always seemed to me a tame pastime, lacking the interest of stakes to be won or lost. I instructed them in the simple rules of bull-ring and Tom's dead, which they quickly mastered. Then I divided the marbles equally among them and gave them to understand that the winner held his gains although marbles, like trade goods, might be bartered for. I emphasized that feature of the game because of a recollection remaining from my own marble-playing days of the contempt in which boys were held who refused to hazard their marbles in a test of skill. They refused to play for keeps, and the rest of us had nothing to do with them. The youngsters of Rotario were not of that stamp. They took their losses in good part. When I saw that, I left them to themselves, and went for a walk through the village. I knew at least, I thought I did, that our stay was to be brief, and I wanted to make the most of it. 
I followed the street bordering the lagoon, past the freshly thatched houses, with their entryways wide to the sun and wind, and came at length to a small burying-ground, which lay in an area of green shadow far from the village. There were a dozen or more graves within the enclosure, some of them neatly mounded over with broken coral and white shell, others encased in a kind of sarcophagus of native cement, to keep more restless spirits from wandering abroad. Most of them were unmarked. Two or three had wooden headboards, one of which was covered with a long inscription in Chinese. Beneath this the word repose was printed in English, as though it had some peculiar talismanic significance for the Chinaman who had placed it there. It was the grave of a predecessor of Moy Ling's. I fell to thinking of him as I sat there, and all of the Chinamen I had met in the earlier days, lonely, isolated figures most of them without family or friends, or the saving companionship of books. What was it that kept them going? What goal were they striving toward through lives which held so little of the comfort or happiness essential to the rest of humankind? Repose. A better end than that, surely. The air rang with the sound of the word. The garish sunlight fell piteously on the print of it. To most men, I believe, with the best of life still before them, there is something terrible, infamous, in the thought of the unrelieved blackness of an endless, dreamless sleep. I turned from the contemplation of it, let my thoughts wander in a mist of dreams, of half-formed fancies, which glimmered through consciousness like streaks of sunlight in a dusty attic. These vanished at length, and for a time, I was as dead to thought or feeling as Moy Ling's predecessor, sleeping beside me. I was awakened by someone shaking me by the shoulder. A voice said, Harry Tipati, come down to the boat, and a dark figure ran on before, turning from time to time to urge me to greater speed. It was almost night, although there was still light enough to see by. I remembered that Tino had told me to be at the copra sheds at five. The tide would serve for getting through the pass until eight, but I hurried nevertheless, feeling that something unusual had happened. Rounding a point of land which cut off the view from the village and inner lagoon, I saw the schooner, about three hundred yards offshore, slim and black, against a streak of orange cloud to the northward. She was moving slowly out, under power. The whaleboat was being hoisted over the side, and at the wheel I saw the familiar silhouette of the supercargo. I shouted, "'Hi, Tino, wait a minute! You're not going to leave me behind, are you?' A moment of silence followed. Then came the answer, with the odd deliberation of utterance which I knew meant Tahiti rum. "'You can stay there and play marbles till hell freezes over. I'm through with you.' What had happened, as nearly as I could make out afterwards, was this. My box of marbles, which I had brought ashore for the amusement of the children, interested the grown-ups as well, particularly the hazard of stakes in the game I had shown them. Pomodians have a good deal of Scotch equitiveness in their make-up. They coveted these marbles. They were really worth coveting. And it was not long until play became general, a family affair, the experts in one being pitted against those in another, regardless of age or sex. Tino's threats and entreaties had been to no purpose. All work had come to an end and the only copra which got aboard the windship was Moy Ling's five tons, 
carried out by the sailors themselves. Evidently, Pauri, the chief, had been one of the most enthusiastic players. He was not a man to be bulldozed or browbeaten. He had great dignity and force of character for all his boyish delight in simple amusements. What right had Tino to say that he should not play marbles on his own island? He gave me to understand, by means of gestures and intonation, and a mixture of French and Pomeranian, that this was what the supercargo had done. At least, apparently, Tino had sent Oro on an unsuccessful search for me. He thought, I suppose, that, having been the cause of the marble-playing mania, I might be able and willing to check it. Walked there, he went on board in a fit of violent temper, and had not been seen again, although his voice was heard for an hour thereafter. Of a sudden anchor was weighed, and I was left, as he assured me, to play marbles with the inhabitants of Rochino for an impossibly long time. Most of these details I gathered afterward. At the moment I guessed just enough of the truth not to be wholly mystified. The watery sputtering of the windship's twenty-five horsepower engine grew faint. Then, with a ghostly gleam of her mainsail in the starlight, she was going. I was thinking, by Jove! I wouldn't have missed this experience for all the copra in the cloud of islands. I was glad there were still adventures of that sort to be had in a humdrum world. It was so absurd, so fantastically unreal, as to fit nothing but reality. And the event of it was exactly what I had wanted all the time without knowing it. There was no reason why I shouldn't stop at Rotario. To be sure, I was shortly to have met my friend Nordolf at Papati, but our rendezvous was planned to be broken. We were wandering in the South Pacific as opportunity and inclination should direct, which, I take it, is the only way to wander. For a few moments I was so deeply occupied with my own thoughts that I was not conscious of what was taking place around me. All the village was gathered there, watching the departing schooner. As she vanished, a loud murmur ran through the crowd, like a sough of wind through trees, a long-drawn-out Polynesian, aye, indicative of astonishment, indignation, pity. Pomotian sympathies are large, and I had been the victim of treachery, they thought, and was silently grieving at the prospect of a long exile. They gathered around, patting me on the back, in their odd way, expressing their condolences as best they could but I soon relieved their minds on that score. Then Huari, the constable with the cigarette-card insignia, pushed his way through with the first show of authority I had seen him make. "'I've been Frisco,' he said, with an odd accent on the last syllable. He had made the journey once as a stoker on one of the mail-boats. Then he added, "'You go to hell me,' his eyes shining with pride that he could be of service as a reminder of home to an exiled American. He was about to take charge of me in view of his knowledge of English, but the chief waved him away with a gesture of authority. I was to be his guest, he said, at any rate for the present. He began his duties as host by entertaining me at dinner at Moiling's door. I was a little surprised that we did not go to his house for the meal until I remembered that the Chinaman had received the only consignment of exotic food left by the windship. Pari ordered the feast with the discrimination of a gourmet and the generosity of a sailor on shore leave 
for the first time in months. We had smoked herring for hors d'oeuvres, followed by soup, curried chicken and rice, edible bird's nests flavored with crab meat from China, and white bread. For dessert, we had small Chinese pears preserved in vinegar, which we ate out of the tin. Woman brand pears, the label said. There was a colored picture on it of a white woman in old-fashioned puff sleeves and a long skirt, seated in a garden, while a Chinaman served her deferentially with pears out of the same kind of a container. Underneath was printed in English, These pears will be found highly stimulating. We respectively submit them to our customers. That was the first evidence I had seen of China's bid for export trade in tinned fruit. Stimulating may have been just the word, but I liked the touch of Chinese courtesy which followed it. It didn't seem out of place, even coming from a canning factory. Pauri gave all his attention to his food, and consumed an enormous quantity. My own appetite was a healthy one, but I had not his capacity of stomach. Furthermore, he ate with his fingers, while I was handicapped from the first with a two-pronged fork and a small tin spoon. I believe they were the only implements of the sort on the island, for the village had been searched for them before they were found. It was another evidence to me of the unfrequented nature of Retario, and of its slender contact even with this world of Papeti traders. At most of the islands we had visited, knives and forks were common, although rarely used except in the presence of strangers. The onlookers at the feast, about half the village, I should say, watched with interest my efforts to balance mouthfuls of rice on a two-pronged fork. I could see that they regarded it as a ridiculous proceeding. They must have thought Americans a strange folk, checking appetite and worrying digestion with such doubtful aids. Finally I decided to follow the chief's example, and set to with my fingers. They laughed at that, and Paris looked up from his third plate of rice and chicken to nod approval. It was a strange meal, reminding me of stories I had read as a boy of Louis XV dining in public at Versailles, with a room full of visitors from foreign courts looking on, whispering behind fans and lace cuffs, exchanging awestruck glances at the splendor of the service, the richness of the food, and the sight of majesty fulfilling a need common to all humankind. There was no whispering among the crowd at the Chinaman's shop, no awestruck glances other than Moy Ling's at the majesty of Paris's appetite. I felt sorry for him as he trotted back and forth from his outdoor kitchen, bringing in more food, thinking of his depleted stock, smiling with an expression of wan and worried amiability. Louis XV would have given something, I'll venture, for that old Pomatonian chief's zest for food, for the tingly weight of bone and muscle, which demanded such a store of nourishment. He pushed back his chair at length with a sign of satisfaction, and a half-caste girl of seventeen or eighteen removed the empty dishes. Pomatonian hospitality is an easy, gracious thing, imposing obligations on neither host nor guest. Dinner over, I told Pauri that I wanted to take a walk, and he believed me. I was free at once, and I knew that he would not be worrying meanwhile about my entertainment. I would not be searched for presently and pounced upon with the dreaded, See here! I'm afraid you are not having a good time, of the uneasy host. I was introduced to no one, dragged nowhere to see anything free from the necessity of being amused. I might do as I liked, rare and glorious privilege and I went outside, 
grateful for it, and for the cloak of darkness which enabled me to move about unobserved. It lifted here and there in the glow of supper-fires, or streak of yellow lamplight from an open doorway. I saw family groups gathered around their meals of fish and coconuts, heard the loud intake of breath as they sucked the Mai Tai sauce from their fingers. Dogs were splashing about in the shallows of the lagoon, seeking their own supper of fish. They are a strange breed, the dogs of the atolls. Like no other that I have ever seen, a mixture of all breeds, one would think, a weird blending of good blood and bad. The peculiar environment and the strange diet have altered them so that they hardly seem dogs at all, but rather semi-amphibious animals, more at home in the sea than on land. They are gentle-mannered with their masters and with strangers, but fierce fighters among themselves. I sat down behind a clump of bushes, concealed from the light of one of the smoldering supper-fires, and watched a group of rotarian dogs in their search for food. They had developed a sort of teamwork in the business, leaped toward the shore altogether with a porpoise-like curving of their bodies, and were quick as a flock of terns to see and seize their prey. Returning from my walk, I found the village street deserted, and all the people assembled back of Moy Ling's shop. He was mixing bread at a table while one of the sons of his strange family piled fresh fuel on the fire under a long brick oven. It was a great event, the bread-making, after long months of dearth and of interest to everyone. Mats were spread within the circle of the firelight. Powry was there with his wife, a mountain of a woman, seated at his side. She was dressed in red calico wrapper, and her long black hair fell in a pool of shadow on the mat behind her. She was a fit wife for a chief, in size and energy, in the fire and spirit, living in the huge bulk of flesh. Her laughter came in a clear stream which it was a delight to hear. There was no undertone of foreboding or bitter remembrance, and the flow of it as light-hearted as the child's, heightened the merry-making mood of the others. There was a babble of talk, bursts of song, impromptu dancing to the accompaniment of an accordion, and the clapping of hands. As I looked on, I was minded of an account I had read of the Pomontonians in which they were described as a dour people, silent, brooding, and religious. Religious some of them assuredly are, despite a good deal of evidence to the contrary, and they are often silent in the dreamy way of remote island people whose moods are drawn from the sea whose minds lie fallow to the peace and beauty of it. But dour and brooding is very far from the truth. I took a place among them as quickly as possible, for I knew by repeated experience how curious they are about strangers, and first meetings were usually embarrassing. Without long training as a freak with a circus, it would try any man's courage to sit for an hour among a group of Pomatonians while he was being discussed item by item. There is nothing consciously brutal or callous in the manner of it, but rather an unreflecting frankness like that of children in the presence of something strange to their experience. I knew little of the language, although I caught a word here and there which indicated the trend of the comment. It was not general, fortunately, but confined to those on either side of me. Two old grandmothers, started a speculation as to whether or not I had any children, and from this a discussion rose as to which of the girls of Rotero would be best suited as a wife for me. I was growing desperate when Chance, the godfather of all wanderers, intervened again in my favor. 
Moiling's fire was burning brightly, and it occurred to several of the youngsters to resume their marble playing. I saw Perusi's face light with pleasure, and he was on his feet at once, with his stake in the ring. Others followed, and soon all those who had marbles were in the sport. I understood clearly, then, how helpless Tino had been. I could easily picture him rushing from group to group, furious at the thought of his interest being neglected through such childish folly. Those marbles were more desirable than his flour and canned goods, which he stood ready to exchange for copra. The explanation of this astounding fact may have been that no one thought he would go off as he did, and tomorrow would do just as well for getting down to business. Since he had gone, there was an end of that. It was futile to worry about the lost food. Certainly it was forgotten during the great tournament which took place that evening. Moy Ling worked at his bread-making unnoticed. His fire died down to a heap of coals, but another was built, and the play went on. Pauri was a splendid shot, in marble playing as in other respects, the best man of the village. But there was a slip of a girl who was even better. During the evening she accumulated nearly half of the entire marble supply, and at length these two met for a test of skill. It was a long, drawn-out game. I had never seen anything to equal the interest of both players and spectators. Not even at Brown's Lumberyard, when the stakes were a boy's most precious possessions. Cornelian stone tossed. No one thought of sleep except a few of the old men and women, who dozed off at intervals with their heads between their knees. The lateness of the hour, the bizarre setting for a game so linked with memories of boyhood, combined to give me an impression of unreality. I had the feeling that the island and all the people on it might vanish at any moment, and the roar of the surf resolve itself into the rumble of street traffic in some gray city. And though it were the very city where marbles are made, where in the length and breadth of it could there be found anyone who knew the use of them, with either the time or the inclination to play. I might search it, street by street, to the soot-stained suburbs. I might go on to the green country, perhaps, visit all the old-time marble-playing rendezvous from one coast to the other, with no better success. And though I passed through a thousand villages of the size of Rutario, could an evening's amusement be provided in any one of them for men, women, and children, at an outlay of four dollars, American? The possibility would not be worth considering. People at home live too fast in these days, and they want too much. I can imagine Tino, in a sober mood, giving a grudging assent to this. But man, he would have added, I wish they had more of their marble-making enthusiasm at Rotario. I would put in here three times a year and fill the windship with copra, to within an inch of the main boom every trip. Moy Ling had enough of it for the whole island, it seemed to me. His ovens were opened as the tournament came to an end, and for half an hour he was kept busy passing out crisp brown loaves and jotting down the list of creditors in his account book. It must have been nearly midnight. The crowd began to disperse. Powery joined me, smiling ruefully, holding out empty hands. He had lost all of his marbles to a mite of a girl whom he could have put in his vest pocket, had he owned one. His wife teased him about it on the way home, laughed heartily at his explanation and excuses. They discussed the events of the day long after the other members of the household had retired to the mats on the veranda. 
At last I heard their quiet breathing, and a strip of light from the last quarter-moon revealed them asleep, two massive heads on the same pillow. I lay awake for a much longer time, thinking of one thing and another, of my friend Crichton at Tanau, the loneliest atoll in the world, I should say, of the windship far out to sea, homeward bound, with one hundred and forty tons of copra in her hold, of Tino with his fits of temper and his passion for trade, which blinded him to so much of the beauty and the joy of life. But after all, I thought, it is men like Tino who keep wheels turning and boats traveling the seas. If he were to die, his loss would be felt. There would be an eddy in the current of life around him. But men like Crichton or myself, we should go down in our time, and the broad stream would flow over our heads without a ripple to show where we had been, without a bubble rising to the surface to carry with it for a moment the memory of our lives. It was not a comforting thought, and I tried to evade it, but I realized that my New England conscience was playing a part in these reflections, and was not to be soothed in any such childish manner. How much copra have you ever produced or carried to market? It appeared to say. I admitted that the amount was negligible. How do you mean to justify your presence here? was the next question, and before I could think of a satisfactory answer, what good will come of this experience either to yourself or to anyone else? That was a puzzler until I happened to think of Findlay's South Pacific Directory. I remembered that his information about Retario was very scant. The general remarks confined, as I have already said, to a single sentence. A lonely atoll, numbering a population of between seventy-five and one hundred inhabitants. As a sop to my conscience, it occurred to me that I might write to the publishers of that learned work, suggesting that, in the light of recent investigations, they add to that description, fond of playing marbles. End of chapter 6「Chapter Seven of Fairylands of the South Seas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti. Chapter Seven A Debtor of Moy Ling. Pare's house stood halfway down the village street at Riterio, facing a broad indentation from the lagoon. The Catholic Church adjoined it on one side, the Protestant Church on the other. Neither of them was an imposing structure, but they towered above the small frame dwelling of the chief with an air of projection of jealous watchfulness. On sunny days they shaded his roof in turn, and when it rained poured over it streams of water through lead pipes projecting from their own ampler roofs, a purely utilitarian function, since the drainage from the three buildings furnished the fresh water supply of the settlement. If the showers were light, the overflow from the largest of the rival churches, splashing on the sheets of corrugated iron, filled the house with a monotonous murmur, like the drowsy argument of two soft-voiced missionaries. But during a heavy downpour, the senses were stunned by the incessant thunder, as though one were enclosed in an immense drum, beaten with non-sectarian vigor by all the Salvation Armies in the world. It was during such a deluge one day in early spring that I lay on the guest-bed in Powery's one-room house, watching Pora, his wife, who had washed my linen with her own hands and was then ironing it. It was not, strictly speaking, linen, 
The articles were three. A sleeveless gauze singlet, a cotton handkerchief, and a faded khaki shirt. A pair of khaki trousers, a pair of canvas tennis shoes, and a pandulous hat completed my wardrobe. Since I needed the whole of it when going abroad about the island, it was necessary to go to bed on washing day, and to wait until the laundering was finished, and such repairs made as constant wear had caused and further wear demanded. How to replenish it, and to meet other simple urgent needs, gave me cause for some concern, and I was going over the problem as I lay on Pirelli's guest bed. It was toward the end of my second week at Ruterio, and already I was beginning to look decidedly shabby. My shoes were rotted out with seawater, and both shirt and trousers, which were far from new at the time of my arrival, gave evidence of early disillusion. Bora had washed, sewed on buttons, drawn seams together, but the garments were chronically ailing as hopeless of effective repair as an old man far gone into senile decay. Poor Ella was becoming discouraged about them, and I knew that she must be wondering why I didn't buy some fresh ones. I had a very good reason for not doing so. I had no money. I had been left at Retario without so much as a twenty-five centime piece, and the bank, the Indochine, was six hundred miles away. It would not occur to either Paris or his wife that I was in need of funds. Theirs was one of the more primitive atolls in the low archipelago, where all white men are regarded as mysteriously affluent. If instead of being marooned at Retario through Tino's fit of temper, I had been discovered a mile outside the reef, making toward the land clad only in a pair of swimming trunks, upon reaching it my rescuers would have expected me, as a matter of course, to take a bulky parcel of thousand-franc notes from beneath that garment. I had, in fact, made a secret inventory of my wealth after the sudden departure of the Calab Winship, hoping there might be a forgotten banknote in one of my trouser-pockets. What I found was a cotton handkerchief, a picture-postcard of the Woolworth Building, and a small musical instrument called an ocarina, or, more commonly, a sweet potato whistle. The handkerchief I needed. The postcard seemed of no practical use as a means of barter, and while I might have given up the ocarina, it had built a slight monetary value. Moi Ling, the Chinese storekeeper of the village, was not interested in it. I didn't offer it to him outright. Instead, I played on it in front of his shop, the March of the Black Watch, which I could render with some skill. Thereafter, every youngster on the island coveted the instrument, but Moi Ling made no offers, and the prospect of a wardrobe was as far away as ever. His supply of European clothing was limited, but ample to supply my wants. He found for me three undershirts size forty-four, two gingham outer shirts of less ample proportions, a pair of dungaree overalls, and a pair of rope-sole shoes. I asked him to put these articles aside, and went off to reflect upon ways and means of opening a credit account with the canny Chinaman there was one possible method open to me. I might adapt the Peru as a costume. I could buy three of them for the price of one undershirt, and I believed that Moi Ling would trust me to that extent. Nearly all of the natives wore Perus. They had put aside their trousers and shirts and gingham dresses, now that I was no longer a stranger to them, and were much more comfortable in their simple knee-length garments those of the men reaching from the waist, those of the women 
twisted tightly under the arms simple and convenient though it was i felt that it would be absurd for me to assume that type of dress since i was not accustomed to it furthermore i remembered the ridiculous appearance of americans and europeans i had seen at tahiti queer people from all sorts of queer places who come and go through the french capital of oceana they rushed into perus the moment of their arrival at papeti and before a week had passed were more primitive in a sophisticated way than the tahitians themselves i had no desire to join the ranks of the amateur cannibals even though there was some excuse for it at retario and i knew that the pomotonians would have more respect for me if i dressed after the manner of my own race but how to obtain clothing without money without divulging to anyone that i had no money the question dined through my brain with annoying persistence like the thunder of falling water on Paris's iron roof would it after all be best to confide in the chief i could tell him of my bank account at papeti and he knew of course that the caleb winship had left me without a word of warning taking my sea-chest with her i was tempted to make a confession of my predicament but pride or a kind of childish vanity prevented me no by jove i said i'll be hanged if i do Paul, his wife all the rest of them expect me to live up to their traditional conceptions of white men i am supposed to be mysteriously affluent and i owe it to them to preserve that myth in all its romantic glamour i had no feeling of guilt in making this decision rather a sense of virtue like that of an indulgent father upon assuring his children that there is a santa claus i decided to be not only mysteriously but incredibly affluent therefore when the rain had passed i put on my mended garments and went to moiling's shop i found him splitting coconuts in front of his copra shed and beckoned him in my careless way he came forward smiling pleasantly as usual but there was a shrewd glitter in his eyes which said quite as plainly as words honorable sir i bow before you but i expect an adequate monetary return for the service i was not intimidated however and when he brought forth the articles i had selected earlier i waved them aside all of them excepting the rope-soled shoes the only male footgear of any kind on the island i explained that i had not before seen the bolt of white dill the most expensive cloth in his shop and that i wanted enough of it to make four suits i saw at once that i had risen in his estimation about seventy-five per cent and thus encouraged i went on buying lavishly white cotton cloth for underwear and shirts some pencils and his entire supply of notebooks for my voluminous observations on the life and character of the pomatonians a night king flashlamp a dozen silk handkerchiefs of chinese manufacture a dozen pairs of earrings and four lockets and chains ten kilos of flour and two of coffee three bottles of perfume and fancy boxes four large bolts of ribbon enough to reach from one end of the village to the other side and back combs for women superbly ornamented with bits of colored glass a bolt of mosquito netting a monkey wrench two beacon lanterns a pandulous mat and one bow tie already made up the kind sold at home in gents furnishing shops at the beginning i had no thought of going in so recklessly but as i went from article to article the conviction grew upon me that the deeper i plunged the greater the impression i should make upon moy ling 
and it was essential that I should convince him that my mythical wealth was real. He became more and more deferential as my heap of purchases increased in size. I made no inquiry as to the price of anything, believing that to be in keeping with the mysteriously affluent tradition. At my back I heard a hum of excited conversation. The shop was filled with people. I felt the crush behind me, but took no notice of it, and went on with my passionless orgy of spending. Two bolts of linen dress goods, four pocket knives, a can of green paint, and another white. But details are tiresome. It is enough to say that I bought lavishly and selected odds and ends of things because Moy's shop contained nothing else. He had a large supply of food, but in other respects his stock was low, and when I had finished, some of his shelves were almost bare. On one there remained only a box of chewing gum. An inscription printed on the side of it read, Chew on, Macduff. You can't chew out the original mint leaf flavor. Or somebody's pepsin gum words to that effect. That product of American Epicureanism is to be found, strangely enough, at nearly every Chinaman's store in the low archipelago. I bought twenty packages of it since there were no other confections to be had, and distributed them among the children. The youthful Macduffs chewed on for some thirty seconds and then swallowed, believing in their unenlightened way that gum is a sort of food. I had read of monkeys dying in zoos because of the same practice, but in so far as I knew, there were no ill effects from it at Rotario, either then or later. I succeeded very well in impressing Paulry. He was astonished at the number of my purchases, and Pora said, Oi! shooed out the mint-breath porters who carried them into the house, and sat down in the doorway, her enormous body completely blocking the entrance. On the veranda the conversation crackled and sparkled with conjecture. I could hear above others the voice of Pocky, the wife of the constable, enumerating the things I had bought. It sounded odd in Pomonian, a high-pitched recitative of strange words, most of them adapted from the English since all the articles were unknown to the natives before the coming of the traders. Fara, flower. Rapine, ribbon. Penny, pencil or pen. Toap, coffee, etc. I myself was wondering what use I could make of some of my wealth. The flour I could give to Paré, and his ten-ton cutter was badly in need of paint. Pora would be glad to have the dress goods for herself and her girls, for the Rotarians put aside their poros on Sunday and are dressed in European costume. I could also give her the mosquito netting as a drapery for the guest bed. I had, in fact, bought it with that end in mind for on windless nights, particularly after rain, the mosquitoes were a fearful nuisance. Paré's household was used to them, but I tossed and tumbled, and at last would have to paddle out on the lagoon and stay there till morning. The coffee, likewise, was for my own use, Paré believing that the drinking of either tea or coffee was forbidden by his variety of the Christian religion. Tobacco, too, was a product of evil and the use of it made broad the way to hell. It is impossible to believe that any missionary would wander so far to preach such theology. What had happened, very likely, was that one of the more austere churchmen who visit Rotario at rare intervals had condemned those white man's comforts as injurious to health. He must have been severe in his denunciation for Pori, had got the idea that abstinence from the enjoyment of them 
was exacted in a sort of amendment to the Ten Commandments. I did my best to corrupt him, for breakfast at his house was to me a cheerless meal. His faith was not to be shaken, however, although he admitted that coffee-drinking might not damn me, since I had been taught to believe that it would not. I was thinking with pleasure of his tolerance and of the comforting beverage I should have the following morning when I remembered that mine was green Tahiti coffee, which must be taken to Moy Ling for roasting. His shop was deserted. I could see it at the end of the sunlit street, steaming with moisture after the rain. The open doorway was a square of black shadow. It lightened with a misty glimmer as I watched, and suddenly Moy flashed into view. He ran quickly down the steps, halted irresolutely, and stood for a moment, shading his eyes with his hand, looking in the direction of Paris's house. Then he turned, mounted the steps again, and vanished slowly in the gloom. I was uneasy, knowing what he was thinking. But an island less than three miles long, with an average width of four hundred yards, offers a poor refuge for a faint-hearted debtor. And so, having stowed my other purchases under the guest-bed, I took the bag of coffee and returned to Moy's store, hoping that I might quiet his fears by increasing my obligation to him. When one is without them, clothing, coffee, tobacco, and other such necessities assume a place of exaggerated importance, which is the reason why the memories of the earlier part of my stay at Rotario are tinged with the thought of them. But I had not come to the low islands to spend all of my time and energy in the mere fight for a comfortable existence. I could have done that quite as well at home, with greater results in the development of a more or less Caruso-like resourcefulness. At Rotario the life was strange and new to me, and I found the days too short for observing it and the nights for reflecting upon it. My first interest, of course, was Paré's household. The chief, his wife, two sons, and three daughters, all housed in that one-room frame building. The room was commodious, however, about twenty feet by fifteen, and on the lagoon side there was a broad veranda where Pura and her daughter did much of their work and passed their hours of leisure. Behind the house was a large cistern, built of blocks of cemented coral, and a small out-kitchen made of the odds and ends of packing-cases and roofed with thatch. I wondered at Paris's preference for a board-box covered with corrugated iron to the seemly houses of the other Rotorians. He thought it a palace, and, being a chief, the richest man of the atoll, it was in keeping with the later Pomonian tradition that he should have a white man's kind of dwelling. Unsightly though it was, without the economy of furnishing, gave the interior an air of pleasant spaciousness, like that of the island itself, with its scarcity of plant life and of trees other than the coconut. There was no European furniture, with the exception of a sewing-machine, and the guest-bed, an old-fashioned slattered affair, which looked strange in that environment. On it was a mattress of Kosbach, and two immense pillows filled with the same material. The linen was immaculate, and the outer coverlet, decorated with hibiscus flowers, worked in silk. I had no hesitation in accepting the bed, for it would not have held Pori and his wife. The slats would have given away at once under their weight, and Pora assured me that the children preferred sleeping on their mats on the veranda. The rest of the furnishings were like those of the other houses. Two or three chests for clothing, pandunas mats for the floor, paddles, 
fishing spears, and water glasses, stacked in a corner or lying across the rafters. An open cabinet of native manufacture held the toilet articles of the women, a hand mirror, a few combs, and a bottle of unscented coconut oil, the one cosmetic of the Low Islands, which was used by all members of the family. There were also several articles of jewelry, such as the trader's cell, some fishing hooks of pearl shell, and on a lower shelf, a Tahitian Bible. The walls were hung with branches of curiously formed coral, hat wreaths, and necklaces of shell wrought in beautiful and intricate designs. There were no pictures other than the open windows looking out on the lagoon in one direction and in the other, across the level, shaded floor of the island, towards the we spent but little time indoors. All of the cooking was done in the open, and we had our food there, sitting cross-legged around a cloth of green fronds. The trees around us furnished the dishes. I had not used my tin spoon and the two-pronged fork since the evening of my arrival, and learned to suck the Mai Tai sauce from my fingers with as loud a zest as any of them. Usually we had two meals a day at Rotario but there was no regularity about the time of serving them. We ate when we were hungry, and food was to be had sometimes in the middle of the afternoon and as late as ten in the evening. That is one reason why I remember so well the feast prepared by Pora and her daughters and served by them, for they never sat down to their own food until we had finished. Feasts of a simple kind, but by Jove, how good everything tasted after a day of fishing and swimming in the lagoon or out at sea. I didn't tire of coconuts as quickly as I had feared I should, and the fish were prepared in a variety of ways, boiled, roasted over hot stones, grilled on the coals, or we ate them raw with a savor of Mai Tai sauce. Paris's dog, one of the best fishers of the island, was the only member of the family discriminating in his requirements. He often came up while we were at dinner with a live fish in his mouth, which he would lay at Pora's feet, looking at her appealingly until she cooked it for him. Sometimes, to tease him, she threw it away, but he would bring it back and, no matter how hungry he might be, refused to eat it raw. The sea furnished occasional variety of diet in the way of turtles and devilfish, and I contributed rice, tinned meat, and other preserved food which I bought of Moi Ling, whenever I imagined his confidence in me was beginning to falter. That was a risky procedure, only to be undertaken on the days when I was so filled with animal spirits that I more than half believed in my wealth, in my power to draw money or anything else I wanted out of the clear, dry air of Rotario. One thing I had wanted from the first, above all others, a house. The idea of opposing indefinitely upon Pori's hospitality was distasteful, and no boats were expected within five or six months. I had not, in years, lived for so long a period at any one place. Here was an opportunity I had often dreamed of for having a home of my own. I should have to ask the chief for it, and at first thought the request seemed a large one. Then, too, how could I say to him with any show of logic, Pori, I am not willing to bother you longer by occupying the guest bed in your house. Therefore, will you please give me a house to myself? He might think I had peculiar ideas of delicacy. But further reflection convinced me that, while I could not ask him for a pair of trousers, not even 
for so trifling a thing as a shirt-button, since he would have to purchase it at Moiling's store, I might legitimately suggest the gift of a house. It would cost only the labor of making it, and that was not great. At Rotario houses were built in less time than was needed to sail across the lagoon and back. The inhabitants might reasonably have adopted the early Chinese method of roasting pig by putting the carcasses in their dwellings and setting fire to the thatch. It would have been a sensible procedure, employed at times when the old thatch needed renewal. Nothing permanent would have been destroyed except the framework of poles, and that could be replaced as easily as firewood could be cut for a mori oven. The upshot of the matter was that I was given not only a house, but an island of my own to set it on. I, who had lived much of my life up four or five flights of stairs, in furnished rooms, looking out on chimney-pots and brick-courts, filled with odors and family washings. The site was a small motu, lying at the entrance to the lagoon, four miles from the village island. It had a name which meant the place where the souls were eaten. Once a man, his wife, and two children went there to fish on the reef near the pass. All of them were taken ill of some mysterious disease and died on the same day. As their souls left their bodies, they were seized and eaten by some vindictive human spirits in the form of seabirds. The legend was evidently a very ancient one, and the events which it described had happened so long ago that fear of the place had largely vanished. Nevertheless, the chief tried to persuade me to choose another site, and Pora, when she learned that I wanted to live on the Soul Eater's Island, was deeply concerned. Neither of them could understand why I should want to live away from the village island. I wince even now, when I think of the appalling tactlessness of that request, but the fact is that the Pomodians themselves, by their example, had got me into the vicious habit of truth-telling in such matters. There is no word in their language for tact. They believe that a man has adequate, although sometimes hidden, reasons for doing what he wants to do. And they understand that it explains seemingly uncourtly behavior. I had accepted, almost unconsciously, their own point of view so that it didn't occur to me to invent any polite falsehoods. But my knowledge of Pomotian was more limited than Paulry's knowledge of French, and how was I to explain my desire for so lonely a place as the Soul Eater's Island? The Pomodians, from their scarcity of numbers, the isolation of their fragments of land, the dangers of the sea around them, are drawn together naturally, inevitably. How make clear to them the unnatural gregariousness of life in great cities? Suddenly I thought of my picture postcard of the Woolworth Building. I told them that in America many people, thousands of them, were cooped together in houses of that sort. I had been compelled to spend several years in one, and had got such a horror of the life that I had come all the way to the cloud of islands, searching for a place where I might be occasionally alone. While the postcard was passing from hand to hand, Hoari, the constable, loyal friend in every emergency, gave color to my explanation by describing for the thousand and first time, I suppose, his adventures in San Francisco. Dusk deepened. The last ghostly light faded from the clouds along the northern horizon, and still he talked on, and the idlers on the chief's veranda listened 
with as keen interest as though they had never heard the story before. Pora, who was at work on my new wardrobe, lit a lamp and placed it on the floor beside her, shading it from her eyes with a piece of matting. The light ran smoothly over her brown hands, and the mountain of shadow behind her blotted out the forms of the trees. Now and then she put down her work and gazed intently in Hori's direction. His voice rose and fell, thrilled with excitement, died away to a deep whisper of awe as he told of the wonders he had seen, the streetcars, the lofty buildings, elevators which rose to an immense height as swiftly as a coconut would fall, the trains, the motors, the ships, the pictures which were alive. He imitated sounds with amazing fidelity, and his gestures, vaguely seen in the gloom, were vividly pictorial of the marvels he had met within his travels. The story ended abruptly, and Hurari sat down, conscious of the effect he had produced. No one spoke for a long while. Then the chief, who was sitting beside me, broke the silence with that strange Polynesian exclamation of wonder too great for words. Ah, 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 uttered with distinct, rapid precision, like the staccato of a machine-gun fire. He laid his hand on my knee affectionately, with an air of possessorship, and at the contact a feeling of pride rose in me, as though I were the planner of the cities, the magician whose brain had given birth to the marvels who Ari had described. But conceit of that kind may be measurably reduced by a moment of reflection. And I remembered that the extent of my contribution to my native land was that I had left it. Small cause for vanity there. However, I had no mind for another tussle with my conscience. I had been the indirect cause of eloquence in Harari and of the enjoyment in all his auditors. That was enough for one evening, on the credit side. On the other side, to Pari, to Pora, to his children, and to all the kindly hospitable people of Rotario, I was under an obligation I could never hope to cancel. But they didn't expect me to cancel it. I was not even under the necessity of showing appreciation. Just as there is no word in their language for tact, there is none approaching our word gratitude in meaning. To a man in my position, owner of Soul Eater's Island, and of a house to be built there the following day, that was something to be grateful for. The Chinese language is richer, I believe, in terms implying obligation. I was reminded less pleasantly of another account on the debit side by the flare of a match which lit up for a moment the pensive, cadaverous face of Moiling. End of chapter 7「Chapter 8 of Fairylands of the South Seas – This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti. CHAPTER Eight, AN ADVENTURE IN SOLITUDE I awoke some time during the latter part of the night, with the bemused presentment that a long-for event was approaching or in the process of happening. Hands had passed lightly over my face, either that or I had dreamed it, and I heard a faint shout coming from the borderland between sleeping and waking. Pauri's guest-bed, with its billowy mattress of kapok, seemed strangely hard, which led to the discovery that I was not lying on a bed, but on a mat in the corner of an empty room. The floor was covered with crushed coral shell, 
which made a faint radiance in the gloom, and a roof of green thatch was alight with reflections of moving water. I was trying to puzzle out whose house this could be, when I heard the shout again, clearly this time, in a pause of silence between deafening claps of thunder. From nearer at hand came the sound of subdued laughter, something elfish, light-hearted, in the quality of it stirred a dim memory, and there flashed into mind the lines of an old poem. Come, dear children, come out and play. The moon is shining as bright as day, up the ladder and over the wall. Raising my head quickly, I saw through the open doorway their perfect illustration. The wall was the smooth wall of the sea, with a waning moon rising just clear of it, sending a path of light to the strip of white beach in front of the house. The palm trees bordering the shore swarmed with children who were throwing down nuts. One ancient tree, its stem a fantastic curve, held its foliage far out over the water at a point where the floor of the narrow outer lagoon shelved steeply toward the reef some fifty yards distant. Both boys and girls were shinning up the trunk one after the other, diving from the plume top, dropping feet foremost, jumping with their hands clasped around their knees into the foaming water. The wreckage of huge combers, which broke on the reef, pouring across it into the inner shallows. A second group had gathered in the moonlit area, just before the doorway. Several youngsters were peering intently in my direction. Others were playing a sort of hand-clapping game to the accompaniment of an odd little sing-song. A small girl with a baby riding astride her hip walked past, and I saw another of ten or twelve standing at the edge of the track of shimmering light, holding a coconut to her lips with both hands. Her head was bent far back, and her hair hung free from her shoulders as she drained the cool liquid to the last drop. Imagine coming out of the depths of sleep to the consciousness of such a scene. I was hardly more sure of the reality of it than I had been of the shout, the touch of hands. It was like a picture out of a book of fairy tales, but one quick with life the figures coming and going against a background of empty sea, where the long swell broke in lines of white fire on a ledge of coral. I remembered where I was, of course, in my own house, which stood on the ocean side of a small motu known in the Pomotian legend as the island where the souls were eaten. The house had been built for me only the day before by the order of Pari, chief of the atoll of Rotario and the Motu was one of a dozen uninhabited islands which lay on the thirty-mile circumference to the lagoons. It was ordered by chance which took me there, perhaps that I was never to see the place in the clear light of usual experience, but rather through a glimmer like that of remembered dreams, a long succession of dreams in which, night after night, events shaped themselves according to the heart's desire, or even more fantastically, with an airy disregard of any semblance to reality. So it was, waking from sleep on the first night which I slept under my own roof. I was almost ready to believe that my presence there was not the result of chance. Waywardness of fancy is one of the most godlike of the attributes of that divinity, but the display of it is as likely as not to be unfriendly. Here there seemed to be reasoned, kindly action. Providence, I said to myself. Providence, without a doubt. 
a little repentant, perhaps because of questionable gifts in the past, a whimsical providence to which delighted in shocking my sense of probability. What could those children be doing on Soul Eater's Island in the middle of the night? I myself had left the village island four miles distant, only a few hours earlier, and at that time everyone was asleep. There was not a sound of human activity in the settlement, not a glimmer of light to be seen anywhere excepting in Moy Ling's, the Chinaman's shop, and on the surface of the lagoon where lay the mystery reflections of the stars. Perhaps, I thought, these are not earthly children. Maybe they are the ghosts of those whose souls were eaten here so many years ago. I was more than half serious in thinking of that possibility. Stranger things had happened on islands not so far removed from the world of men. I dressed very quietly and went to the door, taking care to keep well in the shadow, so that I might look on for a moment without being seen. My doubts vanished at once. Not only the children had come out to play, fathers and mothers as well. Tamatanga was there, and Rikata, and Niha, and Pohu, and Tahari, and Honga, Naitain, Naivain, Tamaha, Monamo, Awaki, and I saw old Raganete, who was at least seventy and a grandmother several times over, clapping her hands with others of her generation and swaying from side to side in time to the music of Copia's accordion. All the older people were grouped around Pari, who was seated in an old deck-chair, a sort of throne, which was carried about for him wherever he went. Pora, his wife, lay on a mat beside him, her chin propped on her hands. Both greeted me cordially, but offered no explanation for the reason of the midnight visit. I was glad that he didn't. I liked the casualness of it, which was quite in keeping with habits of life at Rotario. But I couldn't help smiling, remembering my reflections earlier in the evening. I believed then that I was crossing the threshold of what was to be an adventure in solitude, and was in a mood of absurdly useful elation at the prospect. I was to delve deeply, for the first time, into my own resources against loneliness. I had known the solitude of cities, but there one has the comfortable sense of nearness to others. The refuge of books, pictures, music, all the distractions which prevent any very searching examination of one's capacity for a life of retirement. At Soul Eater's Island, I would have no books, no pictures, excepting a colored postcard of the Woolworth Building, which had won me this opportunity. And for music, I was limited to what I could make for myself with my ocarina, my sweet potato whistle, which had a range of one octave. Thus scantily provided with diversions, I was to learn how far my own thoughts would serve to make a solitary life not only endurable, but pleasant. So I had dreamed, as I paddled down the lagoon, with my island taking form against the starlit sky to the eastward. It was one of those places which set one to dreaming, which seem fashioned by nature for the enjoyment of a definite kind of experience. Seeing it, whether by day or by night, 
the most gregarious of men, I am sure, would have become suddenly enamored of his own companionship, and the most prosaic would have discovered a second meditative self which pleads for indulgence with gentle obstinacy. But alas, my own unsocial nature gained but a barren victory, being robbed at the outset of the fruits of it by the seventy-five convenial inhabitants of Rotario. Here within six hours was half the village at my door, and Poirie told me that the rest of it, or as many as were provided with canoes, was following. Evidently, he had suggested the invasion. My new house needed warming, or the Pomotian equivalent to that festival, so they had come to warm it. Preparations were being made on an elaborate scale. The children were gathering green nuts for drinking and fronds for the cloth at the feast. Women and girls were grating the meat of ripe nuts, pressing out the milk of the mutihari, cleaning fish, preparing shells for dishes. Some of the men and the older boys were building native ovens, eight of them, each one large enough for roasting a pig. All of this work was being carried out under Pauri's direction, and to the accompaniment of Kapuya's accordion. I wish that I might have, in some way, make real to others the unreal loveliness of the scene. It must be remembered that it took place on one of the loneliest of the, a lonely cloud of islands, which lay in the midmost solitude of an empty ocean. The moonlight must be remembered, too, and how it lay in splinters of silver on the motionless fronds of the palms as though it were of the very texture of their polished surfaces. And you must hear Caputa's accordion and the shouts of the children as they dove into the pool of silvered foam. The older ones, out of respect to me, I think wore wisps of paru cloth about their loins, but the babies were as naked as on the day they were born. Tariki was standing among these five- and six-year-olders, who were too small for the climb to the diving-place, taking them up sometimes two at once, and tossing them into the pool among the others, where they were as much at home as so many minnows. Watching them, I thought with regret of my own lost opportunities as a child. I felt a deep pity for all the children of civilization who must wear clothing and who never know the joy of playing at midnight and by moonlight too. Mothers' clubs and child welfare organizations would do well to consider the advisability of repealing the old to-bed-at-seven law and bugbear of all children. Its only merits, if it may be so called, is that it fosters in children a certain melancholy intellectual enjoyment in such poems as up the ladder and over the wall, where the forbidden pleasures are held out to them as though they were natural ones, which most of them are, of course, and quite possible of attainment. I was sorry that Tino, supercargo of the Caleb S. Winship, could not be present to see how blithely the work went forward. He had called the people of Rotario a lazy lot, and he was right. They were lazy according to the standards of temperate climates, but when they worked toward an end which pleased them, their industry was astonishing. Tino's belief was that man was made to labor, 
whether joyfully or not, in order that he might increase his wealth, whether he needed or not, and that of the world at large I remember meeting somewhat the same point of view in reading the lives and memoirs of some of the old missionaries to the islands. It seemed to have irked them terribly, finding a people who had never heard that doleful hymn, Work for the Night is Coming. They, too, believed that the needs of the Polynesians should be increased, but for ethical reasons, in order that they should be compelled to cultivate regular habits of industry in order to satisfy them. Although I don't agree with it, Tino's seemed to me the sounder conviction. The missionaries might have argued as reasonably for a general distribution of Job-like boils in order that the virtues of patience and fortitude might have wider dissemination, but neither trade nor religion had altered to any noticeable extent the habits of life at Ruterio. The people worked as they had always done, under the press of necessity. Their simple needs being satisfied, their inertia was a thing to marvel at. I have often seen them sitting for hours at a time, moving only with the shadows which sheltered them. There was something awe-inspiring in their immobility, in their attitude of profound reverie. I felt at times that I was living in a land under perpetual enchantment, of silence and sleep. These periods of calm, or as Tina would say, laziness, were usually brought to an end by Pori. It was a fascinating thing to watch him throwing off the enchantment, so gradual the process was and so strange the contrast when he was thoroughly awakened and had roused the village from its long sleep. Then would follow a period of activity, fishing, copra-making, canoe-building, whatever there was to do, would be done, not speedily, perhaps, but smoothly, and fasts would be broken, in the case of many of the villagers, for the first time in two or three days. My house was built during such a period. I was still living with Pore in the village island, wondering when, if ever, I was to have the promised dwelling. Then one afternoon, while I was absent on a shell-gathering expedition, the village set out in Mass for Soul Eater's Island, cut the timbers, branded the fronds, erected, swept, and garnished my house, and were at the settlement again before I myself had returned. That task finished, here they were back for the warming festival, and the energy spent in preparing for it would have more than loaded Tino's schooner with copra. I couldn't flatter myself that all of this was done solely to give me pleasure. They found pleasure in it, too. Furthermore, I knew that an unusually long interval of fasting called for compensation in the way of feasting. Pari was in a gay mood. Religion sat rather heavily upon him sometimes by virtue of his papati schooling. He was the chief elder of his church, but once he sloughed off the his air of latter-day saintliness, he made a splendid master of revels, and he threw it aside the moment the drums began to beat and led a dozen of the younger men in a dance which I had not seen before. It was very much like modern Swedish drill set to music, except that the movements were as intricate and graceful as they were exhausting. Three kinds of drums were used, one an empty gasoline tin, upon which the drummer kept up a steady roll while the dance was in progress. The rhythm for the movements was indicated by three others, two of them beating hollowed cylinders of wood, while a third was provided with an old French army drum of the Napoleonic period. The syncopation was extraordinary. 
Measures were divided in an amazing variety of ways, and often, when the opportunity seemed lost, the fragments joined perfectly, just as the next one was at hand. The music was a kaleidoscope in sound, made up of unique and startling variations in tempo, as the dance moved from one figure to the next. At the close of it, Kupia took up her accordion again, and dancing by some of the women followed. At length, Rangatui, grandmother though she was, could resist the music no longer. The others gave way to her, and in a moment she was dancing alone, proudly, with a sort of wistful abandon, as though she were remembering her youth, throwing a last defiance in the teeth of time. Kapia sang as she played to an air which had but four changes in it. The verse was five words long and repeated endlessly. Ta fra to patamai, ta fra po tatamai. Both the words and the air had a familiar sound. They called to mind a shadowy picture of three tall, thin women in spangled skirts, all of them beating tambourines in unison and dancing in front of a painted screen. I couldn't account for the strange vision at first. It glimmered faintly far in the depths of subconscious memory like a colored newspaper supplement lying in mercury water at the end of a pier. Suddenly it rose into focus, drawn to the surface by the buoyant splendor of a name. I remembered then a vaudeville troupe, which long ago made sorry capital of its lack of comeliness, and I saw them again on the island where the souls were eaten as clearly as ever I had as a youngster, knocking their tambourines or bony elbows, shaking their curls, and saying, Shoe fly! don't bother me, in shrill, cracked voices. Kapia's version was merely a phonetic translation of the words. They meant nothing in the Pomodian dialect, and old woman though she was, Rangatay's dance, which accompanied the music, played in faster and faster time, was in striking contrast to the angular movements of the Cherry Sisters, tripping it in the background across the dim footlights of the 1890s. Other canoes were arriving during this time, and at last a large canoe, which had put off from the ocean side of the village island, was seen making in toward the pass. It was loaded with pigs and chickens, the most important part of the feast, and had been eagerly awaited for more than an hour. Shouts of anticipation went up from the shore as the boat drew in with its wished-for freight. But these were a little premature. There was a stretch of ugly, broken water to be passed, where the swift ebb from the lagoon met the swell of the open sea. The canoe was badly jostled in crossing it, and some of the chickens, having worked loose from their bonds, escaped. Like the dogs of the atolls, the chickens were of a wild breed, and they took through the air with sturdy wings. The chase from the shore began at once, but it was a hopeless one. Soul Eater's Island is five hundred yards long by three hundred broad, and there is another on the opposite side of the pass, which is more than a mile in extent. We made frantic efforts to prevent them from reaching it. We threw sticks and stones, tried to entice them with broken coconuts, the meat temptingly accessible. It was to no purpose. They had been enticed before. Their crops were full, and several hours of captivity had made them wary. Furthermore, like all Polynesian chickens, they seemed to have a racial memory of what they had been in other times, in less congenial environments, of the lean days when they had been caught and eaten at will, chased by dogs, run down by horses. They were not so far from all as to have lost conscious pride 
in the regained prerogative of flight. The last we saw of them, they were using it to splendid advantage over the rapid stream which separated the two islands. One old hen alone remained perched on the top of a coconut tree on Soul Eater's Island. She was in no hurry to leave. She knew that she could follow the others whenever she liked, and she knew that we knew it. She seemed drunk with a sense of freedom and power, and cackled proudly, as though more than half convinced that the nuts clustered in the nest of foliage beneath her wings were eggs which she had laid. Knowing the wholesomeness of the Pomeranian appetite, I could understand why the loss of the chickens was regarded seriously. A dozen of them remained, and we had eight pigs weighing from one hundred to one hundred and fifty pounds each, to say nothing of some fifty pounds of fish. All of this was good in so far as it went, but there was a gloomy shaking of heads as we returned from our fruitless chase. Not that the Palmodians were particularly fond of chicken. On the contrary, they didn't care generally for a fowl of any sort. But it serves to fill odd corners of their capricious stomachs. It was this they were thinking of, and the possible lack, at the end of the feast, of the feeling of almost painful satiety, which is to them an essential after-dinner sensation. In this emergency, I contributed four one-pound tins of beef and salmon, my entire stock of substantial provisions for the adventure in solitude. But I could see that Pauri, as well as the others, regarded this as a mere relish, a wholly acceptable but light course of her doors. Fortunately, there was at hand an inexhaustible reservoir of food, the sea, and we prepared to go there for further supplies. I never lost an opportunity to witness those fish-spearing expeditions. Once I had tried my hand as a participant, and found myself as dangerously out of my element as a Pomodian would be at the joystick of an airplane. I saw a great many fish, but I could not have speared one of them if it had been moored to the bottom, and after a few absurd attempts was myself fished into the boat half-drowned. I lay there a few minutes, gasping for breath, my eardrums throbbing painfully from the attempt to reach unaccustomed depths. The experiments convinced me that fish-spearing in the open sea is not an easily acquired art, but one handed down in its perfection through the last twenty generations of Low Island ancestors. It is falling into disuse in some of the atolls, where wealth is accumulating and tinned food plentiful but the inhabitants of Rotario still follow it with old-time zest. They handle their spears affectionately, as anglers handle and sort their flies. These are true sportsmen's weapons, provided with a single unbarbed dart, bound with sinnet to a tapering shaft from eight to ten feet long. Their water goggles, like their spears, they make for themselves. They are somewhat like an aviator's goggles discs of clear glass fitted in brass rims with an inner cushion of rubber which cups closely around the eyes, preventing the entrance of water. When adjusted, they give the wearer an owlish appearance, like the horn-rimmed spectacles which used to be affected by American undergraduates. Thus equipped with their parus girded into loincloths, a half-dozen of the younger men jumped into the rapid current which flows past Soul Eater's Island and swam out to sea. Tohikia, Tihina, Pinga, the boat steerer, and I followed in a canoe. 
Dawn was at hand, and, looking back, I saw the island, my house, and the crowd on the beach in the suffused, unreal light of sun and fading moon. In front of us, the swimmers were already approaching the tumbled waters at the entrance to the pass. Upon reaching it, they disappeared together, and I next saw them far on the other side, swimming in a direction parallel to the reef and some fifty yards beyond the breaking point of the surf. When we joined them, the sun was above the horizon, and they were already at the sport. They lay face down on the surface of the water, turning their heads now and then for a breath of air. They swam with an easy breaststroke and a barely perceptible movement of the legs, holding their spears with their toes near the end of the long shaft. Riding the long, smooth swell, it was hard to keep them in view and they were diving repeatedly, coming to the surface again at unexpected places. Through the clear water I could see every crevice and cranny in the shelving slope of coral, the mouths of gloomy caverns which undermined the reef and swarms of fish as strangely colored as the coral itself, passing through them, flashing across sunlit spaces or hovering in the shadows of overhanging ledges. It was a strange world to look down upon, and stranger still, to see men moving about it as though it were their natural home. Sometimes they grasped their spears as a Bernard would be held for a downward blow, sometimes with the thumb forward, thrusting with an underhand movement. They were marvelously quick and accurate at striking. I had a nicer appreciation of their skill after my one attempt, which had proven to me how difficult it is to judge precisely the distance, the location of the prey, and the second for the thrust. A novice was helpless. He suffered under the heavy pressure of the water, and the long holding of his breath cost him agonizing effort. Even though he were comfortable physically, he might chase with as good a result the dancing reflections of a mirror, turned this way and that in the sunlight. As they searched the depths to the seaward side, the bodies of the fishers grew shadowy, vanished altogether, reappeared as they passed over a lighter background of blue or green, which marked an invisible shoal. At last they would come clearly into view, the spear held erect, rising like embodied spirits through an element of matchless purity, which seemed neither air nor water. The whistling noises which they made as they regained the surface gave the last touch of unreality to the scene. I have never understood the reason for this practice, which is universal among the divers and fishers of the low islands, unless it is that their lungs being famished for air, they breathe it out grudgingly through half-closed teeth. Heard against the thunder of the surf, the sounds hoarse and shrill according to the want of the diver seemed anything but human. We returned in an hour's time, with the canoe half-filled with fish, square-nosed tinga-tingas, silvery tanus, brown-spotted ketos, ganeras. We had more than made good the loss of the chickens. The preparation for the feast had been completed. The table was set, or better the cloth of green fronds was laid on the ground near the beach. At each place there was a tin of my colored beef or salmon, the half of a coconut shell filled with raw fish cut into small pieces in a sauce of matihari salted coconut milk and a green coconut for drinking. Along the center of the table were great piles of fish, baked and raw. 
roast pork and chicken, mounds of bread stacked up like cannonballs. The bread was not of Moy Ling's baking, but made in native fashion, lumps of broiled dough of the size and weight of large grapefruit. One would think that the most optimistic stomach would ache at the prospect of receiving it, but the Pomodian stomach is of ostrich-like hardihood, and, as I have said, after long fasting it demands quantity rather than quality in food. It was then about half-past six, a seasonable hour for the feast, for the air was still cool and fresh, the food was steaming on the table, but we were not yet ready to sit down to it. Fetty days, like Sundays, required costumes appropriate to the occasion, and every one retired into the bush to change clothing. I thought then that I was to be the only disreputable banqueter of the lot, and regretted that I had been so eager to see my new house. Not expecting visitors, I had come away from the village with only my supply of food. Fortunately, Paul Ree had been thoughtful for me. I found not only my white clothing, but my other possessions, bolts of ribbon, perfume, the cheap jewelry, etc., which I had bought on credit of Moy Ling, and the house itself had been furnished and decorated during the hour when I was out with the fish spears. There was a table and a chair, made of bits of old packing cases, in one corner, and on the sleeping mat a crazy quilt and a pillow with my name worked in red silk within a border of flowers. Hanging from the ceiling was a faded papier-mâché bell, the kind one sees in grocers' windows at home at Christmas time. This was originally the gift of some trader, and the pictures, too, which decorated the walls. They had been cut from the advertising pages of some American magazine. One of them represented a man dressed in a much-advertised brand of underwear, who was smiling with cool solicitude at two others who were perspiring heavily and wishing if the legend printed beneath was true, that their underwear bore the same stamp as that of their fortunate comrade. There was another in color, of a woman smiling across the table at her husband, who smiled back while they ate a particular brand of beans. The four walls of my house were hung with pictures of this sort, strung on cords of coconut fiber. Harry's work, I was sure, done out of the kindness of his heart. He was merely an unconscious agent of the gods administering this further reproof for my temerity in seeking consciously an adventure in solitude. As I changed my clothing, I pondered the problem as to how I could get rid of the gallery without giving Hauri offense, and from this I fell to thinking of the people smiling down at me. Is our race made up in large part of such an out-and-out -out materialists, whose chief joy in life lies in discovering some hitherto untried brand of soup or talcum powder? Do they live, these people? They look real enough in the picture. I seem to know many of them, and I remembered their innumerable prototypes. I had been in the world I had left only a year before. Well, if they are real, I thought, what has become of the old doomsday men and women who used to stand at street corners with bundles of tracts in their hands, saying to passers-by, my friend, is your soul saved? No answer came from the smiling materialists on all sides of me. They smiled still, as though in mockery of my attempt to elude them in whatsoever unfrequented corner of the world. 
as though life were merely the endless enjoyment of creature comforts, the endless, effortless use of labor-saving devices. One man in his late fifties, who really ought to have been thinking about his soul, had in his eyes only the light of sensual gratification. He was in pajamas and half-shaven, announcing to me, to the world at large, at last, a razor. The sight of him offering me his useful little instrument put an end to my meditation. I rubbed ruefully a three-day growth of beard, thinking of the torture in store for me when I should next go to Panega for a shave. He was the village barber as well as its most skillful boat-steerer. His other customers were used to his razor and his methods, and their faces were inured to pain. For had not their ancestors, through countless generations, had their beards plucked out hair by hair? I, on the other hand, was the creature of my own land, of creature comforts. The anticipation of a shave was agony and the realization, Pinga, sitting on my chest, holding my head firm with one immense hand while he scraped and rasped with his dull razor. That was to die weakly and to live to die again. I got what amusement I could from the thought of the different set of values at Rotario. I had only to ask for a house, and Pori had given me one, with an island of my own to set it on. He thought no more of the request than if I had asked him for a drinking coconut. But not all the wealth of the low island pearl fisheries, had it been mine to offer, could have produced for me a safety razor, with a dozen good blades. I heard Pori shouting, Hamatama, and went out to join the others, my unshaved beard, in woeful contrast to my immaculate white clothing. But my guest or host had the native courtesy of many primitive people, and I was not made conscious of my unreaped chin. Furthermore, everyone was hungry, and so after Pari had said grace for the Church of Latter-day Saints, and Hari a second one for the Reformed Church of Latter-day Saints, and Natau a third, as the Catholic representative, we fell to without further loss of time. The enjoyment of food is assuredly one of the great blessings of life, although it is not a cause for perpetual smiling, as the writers of advertisements would have one believe. According to the low island way of thinking, it is not a subject to be talked about at any length. I like their custom of eating in silence, with everyone giving undivided attention to the business in hand. It gave one the privilege of doing likewise, a relief to a man weary of the unnatural dining habits of more advanced people. It may be a trifle gross to think of your food while you are eating it, but it is natural, and if the doctors are to be believed, an excellent aid to digestion. Now and then Pauri would say, Uimamantera, a thing good that tapping a haunch of roast pork with his forefinger, and I would reply, E'e amatein ta Yes, a thing very good, that. Then we would fall to eating again. On my right, Hunga went from fish to pork, and from pork to tinned beef, whipping the maitai hari to his lips with his fingers without the loss of a drop. Only once he paused for a moment and let his eyes wander the length of the table. Shaking his head with a sigh of satisfaction, he said, Katanga Aruha Katanga. Food and yet more food. There is no phrase sweeter to Pomatonian ears than that one. Ari, the constable, 
was the only one who made any social demands upon me. As already related, he had once made a journey from Papati to San Francisco as a stoker on one of the mail-boats, and was immensely proud of the few English phrases which he had picked up during the voyage. He didn't know the meaning of them, but that made no difference. He could put on side before the others made them believe that he was carrying on an intelligent conversation. "'What's the matter?' "'Oh, yes. Never mind.' were among his favorite expressions, unusually mild ones, it seemed to me, for one who had been associated with a gang of cockney stokers, and he brought them out apropos of nothing. He was an exasperating old hypocrite, but a genial one, and I couldn't help replying to some of his feints at conversation. Once out of curiosity, wondering what his reply would be, I said, Hurry, you're the worst old four-flusher in the seventy-two islands, aren't you?' He smiled and nodded and came back with the most telling of all of his phrases. You go to hell me. On that occasion, it was delivered with that what seemed something more than mere parrot-like aptest of reply. Clipped to his undershirt, he wore a fountain pen, which was as much a part of his costume on these dress occasions as his dungaree trousers and Pandora's hat. It had a broken point was always dry, and although Hari read fairly well, he could hardly write his own name. No matter. He would no more have forgotten his pen than a French soldier his corps de guerre. But he was not alone in his love for these implements of Papaya's white man's culture. There was Havaki, for example, who owned a small folding camera, which he had bought from some trader. The two men were very jealous of each other. Hari had traveled and had a fountain pen but Havaki's camera was a much more complicated instrument. There had never been any films for it, but he was quite satisfied without them. The camera stood on a shelf at his house, an ever-present proof of his better title to distinction. His chief regret, I believe, was that he couldn't wear it, as Hari did his pen, but he often carried it with him on Sundays and went through the pretense of taking pictures. Some of the more sanguine still believed that he would one day surprise the village by producing a large number of magnificent photographs. A further account of the feast at Soul Eater's Island would be nothing more than a detailed statement of the amount of food consumed, and it would not be credited as truthful. It is enough to say that it was a latter-day miracle, comparable to the feeding of the five thousand with this reversal of the circumstances that food for approximately that number was eaten by twenty-two men. At last, Paris sat back with a groan of content and said, Aye, para hurry paeto tattoo. It is impossible to translate this literally, but the exact meaning is, We are all of us full up to the neck. It was true, we were. That is, all of the men. The women and children were waiting, and as soon as we gave them, place they set to on the remnants. Fortunately, there was, as Hungai has said, food and yet more food, so that no one went hungry. At the close of the feast, I saw old Ragnatoy take a fragment of coconut frond and weave it into a neat basket. Then she gathered into it all of the fish bones and hung the basket from one of the rafters of my house. Rangituki was pure heathen, one of the unredeemed of the Rotarians, 
but I noticed that some of the Catholics and Latter-day Saints, even Reformed Saints of the Latter-day persuasion, all in good standing in their churches, assisted her in making the collection. I had observed the same practice at other islands. At the beginning of a meal thanks were given to the god of Christians for the bounty of the sea, but fishermen's luck was a matter of the first importance, and while the old gods might be overthrown, there seemed to be a fairly general belief that it would not do to trifle with immemorial custom. It was mid-morning before the last of the broken meats had been removed, and the beach made tidy. The breeze died away, and the shadows of the palms moved only with the imperceptible advance of the sun. It was a time for rest, for quiet meditation, and all of the older people were gathered in the shade, gazing out over a sea as tranquil as their minds, as lonely as their lives had always been, and would always be. I knew that they would remain thus throughout the day, talking a little after the refreshment of light slumbers, but for the most part sitting without speech or movement, their consciousness crossed by vague thoughts which would stir it scarcely more than the cat's palm ruffled the surface of the water. No sudden half-anguished realization of the swift passage of time would disturb the peace of the reverie. No sense of old loss to be retrieved would goad them into swift and feverish action. A land-crab moved across a strip of sunlight, and sighted into his hole, pulling his grotesque little shadow after him. And the children, restless little spirits, splashed and shouted in the shallows of the lagoon, maneuvering fleets of empty beef and salmon tins, reminders of the strange beginning of my adventure in solitude. End of chapter 8